The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. We're going to go today, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 just to start with, and then we're going to go back through Philippians today, because we're going to look at a verse, we're talking about the glory of God, if you remember, uh, and we're looking at the, the doctrine of the church or things related to the church, and this is going to be our last study today on, on the church related to the glory of God. I'm, I know for a fact that there's some other statements we could look at, but they kind of are going to be repetitious of what... Uh, repetitions of what we've already looked at. So we come here today to Philippians chapter 4. I'm just going to take this verse out of its context. We're going to read it. Verse 19, Philippians 4, 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, that was a really important verse when you're in college. And uh, you start your next semester and, okay, for those of you that are younger than, there's not a lot of you that are younger than me anymore. But when I was in college, I'm just thinking when I remember seeing, I remember paying my daughter's U bill, you know, sending over the, the credit card to, to pay her university bill at the beginning of a semester and looking at what she was paying per semester or quarter compared to us. Mine was $1,400 room board, and I definitely got my board out of it. <laughs> I don't skip meals. And tuition, that covered everything. $1,400 covered everything for a semester. And, uh, and, but you got to still have, you have to have that money to pay that, you know. And back then, minimum wage was $3.19. So you can imagine how many hours you have to work to save up that much money. But all along while you're saving that money, you're also having to spend that money to drive to work. And to eat. And anyway, I'm belaboring the point. The whole point is, remember a lot of students, a lot of my friends are all like, oh, I got to pay my U-bill. I got to pay my U-bill. And, and uh, oh, but my God will supply all my needs. <laughs> and my need is to be able to pay my, my university bill. Uh, and uh, you know what? That's not what this verse is about. Because this verse says, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Of course, we like the riches part. Yeah, God is, we used to, when I was growing up, he is the owner of the, of the cattle on a thousand hills. Remember, did you guys ever grow up singing that song? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. Yeah, we sing that a lot. Uh, and so we, you were kind of focusing on material wealth when you're looking at those things. But... As Paul tells us in other passages, which we're not here to look at today, but as Paul says in other passages, one of them being right here in Philippians chapter 4, we can be content in everything. And he says over in 1 Timothy 6, if you got food and you got something to cover yourself up with that's adequate with that thing, be content. God has never promised us that we're going to have a wardrobe of clothes. Keep in mind, most people in their day they didn't have closets like we have today, you know. T today, there are people that have walk-in closets that are bigger than some bedrooms I grew up in, <laughs> you know. And so you got this walk-in closet, and it is full. <laughs> it's full so much that, you know, you're like, you got to pull stuff apart to pull something out. 
And uh, it, they didn't have that. They didn't have things like that. They didn't even have a closet like I have, you know, with the sliding doors from two sides because there's enough stuff in there. They, most of those people, had two changes of clothes. They had a pair of clothes that they worked in and then a pair of the clothes that they cleaned up that were good that, guess what, just like my jeans when I was a kid, they're going to become your work clothes after six months or whatever it was. So there's just a lot of things I think we need to adjust our minds about to think of. And that actually not tr was just true in New Testament times. That's been true through most of the history of the church and most of the history of the world, that most people do not have an abundance of clothing like we do. And they did not have shelters like we do. Think of our shelters and how uh, they've got all the comforts of life and how big they are, you know. Uh, when you think of people, I mean, I, I knew of a family that they had five kids and they lived in a house smaller than what I live in. Smaller than I, probably about a third smaller. So take that house, chop a third of it off, and that's what they raised five kids in. And, uh, and I never, ever, when I was growing up with, around those kids, never heard them like, oh, man, we're all under feet, underfoot, and all that. You just, you lived with it. That's the way it was. I've known, I knew a family that raised four kids, and they lived in a 32-foot camper trailer because they lived on the road because their dad was a plumber and a plumber's welder, and they just went from job site to job site. So they lived in this 32-foot camper trailer. All of this to say, when God tells, there's a lot of things we can live without. I have to remind myself of that. You have to remind yourself of that. This verse is not about the fact that God's going to make sure we got all the clothing we want, that we're going to drive the car we want, that we're going to live in the house we want. It doesn't say want. It says needs. And these needs that he's talking about are not the car. They're not the clothing. They're not the house. They're not the food. Because these needs are met, where does it say at the end of verse 19? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So these needs have to do with something that you and I as believers can relate to who we are in Christ to experience the meeting of those needs. So let's go back to chapter 1 and let's walk through the book of Philippians here. And I want to point out a few things that the Apostle Paul uh, says here when, he, when he's uh, talking to these people, writing these letters. By the way, if you have a steady Bible or you read a thing, they always talk about the book of Philippians as the epistle of joy. Because the word joy, the noun and the verb, occur quite a few times in this small letter. But this is the interesting fact that I don't know that I've ever seen anybody pay attention to. Whenever the Philippians are, are whenever Paul's addressing them specifically about themselves, he's always telling them, you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice. The only person that is rejoicing is Paul. The Philippians are lacking joy. That's the issue when you read this letter. It's the epistle of joy because he's calling them to rejoice. And he's calling them to share in the joy he has. But they're not doing it. So Paul says, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in every remembrance of all you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer or every worship for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect, perfect it or bring it unto its completion in the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way 
about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of the grace with me. And I believe part of the reason he's saying that, that they're partakers in this grace, has to do with the fact that, as he's going to say later on, and it's repeated here, that he has received recently a gift. In fact, does anybody know what region of the world, not which region of the world, what, shall we say, small country Philippi was in? Remember what it was called? Starts with an M. Macedonia. Macedonia. When Paul writes the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, what does he say about the, about the Macedonians? Let's go. They were poor. In fact, keep your finger here and just flip over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I always like that how I tell you to hold your place here with your finger. How many of you are following along on your phone or, or, or tablet or something? But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God that was given among the churches in Macedonia. So he, when he's looking, he's not saying the grace of God in terms of that God gave the Macedonians an extra grace. What he's saying is the grace of God, an expression of God's grace that was being exercised over there in those churches. That in a great ordeal of affliction, in the abundance of joy and their, what is he, what's the word he attaches to the word poverty? No, to the word poverty. Mine says, what? Extreme poverty. Here says extreme poverty. Mine says deep poverty. So these guys just aren't poor. These are really poor. Paul's not just throwing an adge or a adjective out there to describe this. He's indicating they were really poor. But it overflowed in the riches of their liberality. They were generous. Now, how are you generous if you're really poor? We've talked about this before. It means you're going to have to intentionally give something up. I mean, today... People can give, do their giving in a lot of churches with their credit card. They can do it online. And with a credit card, we all know, hopefully not experientially, that you can run up debt that you don't have cash to cover. So at the end of the month when that bill comes up, you pay part of it off, but you can't pay it off in full. You just can't do it. You don't have it. But these people didn't have that option. So if they give out of their poverty, that means, guess what? I've told you this. We're going to eat rice and beans this week. We're not going to have a lot of extra fancy veggies and we're going to have to kind of do without meat because, well, we're going to give to help these people in their poor situation out of what we have. And that's, he says, the way they give, they gave. So anyway, go back over there to Philippians chapter one, as Paul's talking about this, what these people are doing, and he's encouraging them. You guys have done some good things, but he wants them to go beyond this. And so if we go down to verse a nine, and this is then what I, I pray, or this is the thing that's in my, involved in my worship, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge in all careful discernment so that you may prove the things that are excellent or the things that are distinct or differing in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. He's talking about sincere and blameless and what they're doing. Now, when he's talking about this idea that your love might abound more and more, he's not saying you guys don't have love, but I want your love to increase. And I want your love, as he says down in verse 10, to be proved in the things that are distinct or different. In simple terms, you and I as believers have the opportunity to love. 
But as you're growing, your love should become more and more refined. You should be, realize that there's better ways to help love. I've used this since we're talking since we were talking about the Philippians giving money. Let's use this as an illustration. Let's say you got a believer that comes and knocks and goes, um, "Hey, I'm in need. I can't pay the rent. I, I don't have money." And it's not like the person's sitting around not doing anything. Okay, so they're wor actually working a job, but they're but they can't pay the rent. You go and get some money, give them cash. There's some money to pay the rent. Next month, hey, I can't pay the rent, <laughs> and they're still working. They're working a job. They're working full time. Maybe they even went out and got a second job, but they're still struggling to pay the rent. And they're not running off, eating out five nights a week or something. Okay, I'm not, So I'm just trying to give you a best case scenario. They're actually trying to do the right thing, but you know what it's like today. I don't know how any of you people afford to pay rent if you have, that's what you have to pay. It's just like, that would be, for a lot of people, that's half their paycheck just to pay rent. And I don't know how people survive in this world today. That's my personal opinion. But let's say that comes, they do that and you help them again. And then, in the next month. Now that, that's a way to love them. It's to help them with something that basic. But you know, maybe there's a refined. This is just an idea that I would have. Maybe there'd be a refined way that might you might say, hey, have you ever heard of Dave Ramsey? <laughs> I'm not saying that Dave Ramsey is the best way route to go, but maybe what I'm saying is, maybe you could love them more than not just helping them do that, but maybe there's a way that you could help. Hey, let's look at your money and let's see if there's a way that maybe you could make some adjustments in the way that you live and the way you think. Dwight and I have had this conversation, you know. Dave Ramsey is always like, you know what? You drive the cheapest vehicle you can afford. <laughs> you don't go out and buy a big fancy vehicle when you don't have the money to pay for it, you know. Uh, these are the kind of things. And that might be a good way to love them, wouldn't it? Yeah, they need the help with the rent, but maybe they need to, maybe they don't know how to just handle money. There's a, you'd be, well, you probably wouldn't be surprised. We know what our economy's like today. There's a lot of people that have no clue as to how to handle money in a reasonable manner. Uh, so I, I'm just using that as an example that maybe you could think about a way to, to, to do it better. Now, that was an illustration I gave using the money thing. But in the church in Philippi, their need, their need goes back to the verse that we looked at back over in chapter 4, verse 19. It has to do with a need that's met in Christ Jesus. And it's a need that involves learning to work together. And this is going to be borne out in just a minute. So, I want you to go down to verse 12 now in chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. <clears throat> and most of the brothers, uh, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have been far more courageous or far more bold to speak the word of God without fear. They're going, why, well, if Paul can do this, I can, I can share this good news. I can talk about this and do it without fear. Some for certain, he says, they preach Christ even from envy and strife. In other words, there's some believers that are doing it for the wrong reason. And when you find believers serving for the wrong reason, you know what you're supposed to do? You don't tell them stop. We're going to see that in just a second. We all, this is the way I would have handled this for years because I didn't understand these verses. I always read, always read these verses. Yeah, you got some unsaved people that they share the gospel. Uh, and I was like, unsaved people sharing the gospel? Because they couldn't imagine that believers would actually do a good thing for the wrong reason. But that happens, doesn't it? 
You got believers that do a good thing, but their motivation's wrong. These guys are doing it out of, he says, envy and strife, but some from goodwill. These, the latter ones, they do it uh, out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. They're doing it because they love Paul and they, they want to participate in what Paul's doing. But the others, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they're actually going to cause more problems in my imprisonment. <laughs> I don't know why you would want to do that, but you know what? When believers' motives are messed up, we do some pretty stupid things, even trying to do a right thing to cause problems for somebody else. And that's what Paul says they're doing. So verse 18, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or grief, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I'm pretty upset, and I wish those other guys had quit it. No, he says, the, the Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. In other words, Paul says, even if their motive is messed up, at least Christ is being proclaimed, and I can rejoice in that. That doesn't fit the way we tend to think as human beings, does it? It's, we're not saying Paul's going, hey, I'm okay. M motive's messed up, motive's messed up. I never care if motives are messed up. No, Paul's saying, I do care about that. But you know what? I can still look at the fact that something's getting done. If there's believers that need some help in some way and a believer steps up to help them with whatever that help might be, even if they have motives that are a little bit out of whack or maybe a lot out of whack, you'd just be glad somebody stepped up to help. And so as he's talking about this, this is setting the tenor for what's, what he's going to be talking about through the rest of this letter. Namely that there's a possibility that there's some believers in this church that are doing some things and have served and are having problems now, but in their having served, their motives have been messed up and some feelings have gotten hurt. One of the other things that's interesting in this letter we're not going to look at, uh, you can chase themes through the book of Philippians. Philippians, you don't always have to go from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, verse by verse. Sometimes you can chase <laughs> themes, and a theme in this book is to look at all the places where Paul uses the word soul. What is your soul? What do you do with your soul? Your it's your emotions. So, you're, so, we, so when you are doing things and you're interacting with other people, sometimes we have feelings. And sometimes when we're in a setting and things are going on, with those feelings, let's say Dwight and I are working here. Dwight's been so nice. He's been coming by, checking in on my project in there. Dwight is a, a good carpenter. I've worked with him. I've helped him. And he doesn't come in there going, oh, man, this guy is a, Tim, you are a cry for help. Messed up, messed up, messed up. He's being real nice about it. He's being real nice about it. But you need any help with that. What? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> but but Dwight, as he as he comes by, there have been a couple times that he said hey, we should do this. Like when he helped me put the drywall, and he says, "No, no, 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 we do it like this." And I'm like, "But that's not the way I was going to do it." You know, you could do that way. And does that happen sometimes when you're doing things with people? I wanted to do it this way. You know, and people's feelings get hurt. But you know what happens when people's feelings get hurt? Sometimes you get people going, fine, guess what? I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. I'm not going to do this anymore. And that kind of thing can happen among believers working together in the body of Christ. In fact, one of the things, and I, I got to share this at a memorial service yesterday, 
And we all know these verses. I'm not going to go through them. But it's where Paul says, you know what I would prefer to do? I would prefer to die and go to be with the Lord. That's a lot better than having to breathe this air another day. But I'm probably going to stick around with you guys. And you say, how would Paul be able to decide that? Well, I always figured Paul could have gone into his defense before Caesar and submarine that defense. He could have gone in there and just made himself look like the bad guy that people were trying to make him out to be. And he could have just reinforced all that, but he didn't. And uh, that's the other thing. I want to go on down in the, con in the context here and go down to verse 27. And Paul says here, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you stand firm in one spirit. What do you do with your spirit? There's two different ways of looking at spirit and soul, but what's one of the things you could say you do with your spirit? You think. How do you think? This is, a, this is an interesting thing. Do you ever think with your soul? Yes. yes, you do. So what's the difference between thinking with your spirit and thinking with your soul? Soul involves your senses. Your spirit does not. And your spirit does not. So the difference is, when you think with your spirit, you're thinking objectively. You're just looking at it for what it is. When you think with your soul, you're thinking subjectively. How does this affect me? How does this make me feel? Hmm. You all get the idea, the difference? So he says, I want you to, I want all of you as believers to stand together in one spirit. That means you're all thinking objectively. But do you just then push the soul aside? No, notice what he says in the next part of the verse. It says, and with one mind. Now we've been over this many times before. If you haven't changed this in your Bible, I would make a change. Because that mind there is the word soul, not mind. And I'm going to tell you, I think the reason they translate it mind is because most of the church believes that you are body and soul. That's it. Spirit and soul are the same thing. They don't understand that you're body, soul, and spirit. They don't see that you're actually three parts. And so the places where you have spirit and soul back to back used to talk about something, people struggle with that. But he says, with one, with one soul striving together. And that word striving, we've been over that together. Can anybody remember what that word striving here means? It's the word athleo. What do you think we get from the word athleo? Athletics. To work, but it's not just athleo, it's soon athleo. Soon is that preposition that means closely with. He's talking about working together as a team. He's talking about working together as a team. He says, I want you to stand objectively with one spirit, but I want you to work together as a team with one soul. That is, you guys can actually feel the same way and be subjectively interacting down here, and you can work as a team. Do you ever look at, the, at your relationship in the body of Christ? We see it as a family. We see ourselves as a temple. We see ourselves as the body of Christ. Have you ever looked at yourself as a team? Paul's going to use this word teamwork here, this word athleo with that soon preposition. He's going to use that twice in this letter. But that's another way of looking at ourselves. We're a team and we work together. And when you do things as a team, you need to think objectively, but you also need to be able to think subjectively about the way you interact with other people. And he says, you guys can do that with one soul, not souls that are divided. And I've told you, I've told you before uh, the story about when my dad was coaching uh, varsity girls basketball when I was in high school and a girl that was one of my friends, uh, her feelings got hurt by another girl on the team 
And so when the ball came to her, even if that girl was, was good and that girl could get that shot for sure, there was a good chance she wasn't going to pass to that girl over there. And my dad ended up pulling her off the court and set her on the bench because she was not doing what she was. And it was because of her soul. In her soul, she was hurt by this other person and didn't want to let them play well. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But people do that kind of thing. We look at that and go, well, that's crazy. But people do that all the time. Our feelings are hurt. Therefore, I don't want to play with you anymore. Or I'll play with you, but I'm not going to actually play with you. I'm not going to let you get an advantage in any way. And Paul says, you know, as you are working together here with regard to this good news about the Christ, he says, you guys can actually get it together and work together as a team. It's going to start with objective thinking with your spirit, and then you bring your soul in there so that you can work together as a team. Go down to chapter 2. This spirit and soul thing, we've talked about this numerous times here in chapter 2, but the first part of it says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, how do you relate to your position in Christ first and foremost? Spirit or soul? Spirit. With your spirit. So that's going to be, so there's encouragement in Christ. But if there's any consolation that word consolation is actually kind of a soothing do you soothe your spirit or do you soothe your feelings yeah. feelings so he says if there's any soothing from love so you can focus on love that you're going to soothe somebody that they're in their feelings they're hurt they're they're having some real problems in there it says if there's any fellowship with regard to the spirit fellowship with regard to the spirit what part do you think you're going to be using your spirit, if there's any affections or compassion and tender gut, or that's the word gut feelings is the first word compassion, and then the tender feelings towards them, that's the second word that he uses here. What do you think that's part of? That's your soul. Make my joy complete by being of the same frame of mind. We've talked about that word a lot. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, in intent, on one purpose, and then intent on one purpose comes back to framing your mind with one thing. He uses that at the beginning of the verse, and he uses that word at the end of the verse. Your frame of mind is a big deal for how you get along with other believers. I can guarantee if your feelings are hurt, your nose is out of joint, whatever it might be, or you don't want to hang out with other Christians, nine times out of ten, your frame of mind is not where it's supposed to be. Your frame of mind is set on something that happened down here rather than what God says about us at his right hand, all united together in Christ. And I said nine times out of ten because maybe once in a while there's another reason in there. I don't know what it might be off the top of my head, but most of the time when we have hard feelings, when we're not feeling well with the church, it really has to do with the fact that our frame of mind is not set properly. So he's going to give us four examples, and we're not going to walk through these today because that would take us the whole rest of this week and part of next week probably with me. But he uses four examples of service. The first one is Christ, who he says is God, but he came down and became a man and became a slave, even a slave to the point of death. He did somebody else's will. So Christ is the first example. Second example is Paul, where Paul says of himself, he says, I, if I'm being poured out so that you guys can serve, I'll rejoice in that. Which simply means, think about it, how many of you like to be the guy that needs help? How many of you like, to, I love to be somebody in need, somebody that's having, that has problems and needs help. No, we like to be the person that gets to help. 
not the person that needs help. And Paul says, no, I'll rejoice if you guys get to serve because of me. Then he gives Timothy as an example. These are all in chapter two. I encourage you to go home and read these. I'd love to teach through all of these, but like I said, we won't get through them if, if we do that. But he uses Timothy and he says, you know what? Timothy is the only guy I know that soul is like mine here. He really feels about you like I feel. He says, everybody else, they're feeling that these are the other people that happen to be with Paul at them. He's not saying every, excuse me, everybody else that's out there in the world. He's saying, everybody else that's with me that I could send to you, Timothy's the only one I know that feels about you like I do. And I think one of the reasons he does that was because when Paul and Silas are in Philippi, they're accompanied by two other people. They're accompanied by Luke and they're accompanied by Timothy. So there's four people that come to Philippi. And when they leave, Luke tells us, Paul and Silas departed and we, but he doesn't say anything about Timothy going on that trip. And I've got a feeling that when they left Philippi, that Paul either sent Timothy back or left Timothy behind, meaning that Timothy probably stayed behind for a period of time in Philippi to help these people get grounded, but Paul had to leave because the government officials asked them to leave. And so Paul did after he got an apology from them. And then the last guy he uses, and I want to look at this guy. Uh, this is one I do want to look at. If you go on down to verse 25 in chapter 2, he says, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is your apostle, so he's sent from you, and your uh, priestly minister unto my needs. So this guy was from Philippi. And they had sent him with a gift. And he says, because he's longing for all of you with distress because you heard that he was sick. And indeed he was sick. He was sick to the point that he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him, you may rejoice and have less concern or worry. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy, holding him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So two things here are this last verse for you to understand. When he says here that he came close to death, risking his life, that word risking his life is a word in the Greek which means he took his life and he just threw it aside. This is what I need to do. Wait a second, I've got a temperature. <clears throat> My chest is feeling kind of full. You all know what that's like when you're like, yeah, I'm feeling, I've got a temperature. Man, I'm breathing hard. I'm, I'm coughing a lot. I think I need to stay home. Nope, he's going to go, I've got to help Paul. So he throws his life aside and presses on ahead. Now, he's, what he's doing in doing that is he's making up what is deficient in your priestly service. The same word that he used for what he is back in 25. Now, what was that priestly service? It was the fact that he said, you sent by Epaphroditus a gift to me. So here this poor church took up a collection to send it to Paul over in prison to help him. And when he gets over there and he sees Paul's need, I was like, he opens up the bag, he looks at the coins and he's going, this is not going to go very far. And he gives the bag to Paul and he goes out and finds a job, not for himself, but so that he can take what he learns from that job to help out Paul. Do you get a picture of what he's doing? This is what Epaphroditus is doing for Paul. Because that's the ministry. That's the priestly service that the church 
that the church helped Paul with. They sent a gift to Paul to help him out. And he realizes this isn't going to go very far. So I'm going to work. And I don't know if you were from the city of Philippi over there and you traveled to Rome, you know, what kind of work is he going to find? I don't know. Apparently it was some work where he got sick in the process somewhere along the line and he kept going and working. So I don't know. Maybe he's digging ditches because that's the only job he could find. Maybe the weather's inclement. Maybe he's out there pruning grapevines or, or orchards. In the dead of winter, I, I put bundled up. I've, there's been times in January where I come over here to the church in the morning. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have my hot cup of coffee, turn the heat on my office. I'll get some work done. And I can hear, I'm like, what is that? And out here, and it's 10 degrees, there's a little cart being pulled through the orchard. And there's two guys strapped to this cart. And they've got hydraulic pruners. And they're going through pruning the orchard in 10 degrees. If they were walking through the orchard and pruning like this, they'd be generating a little bit more heat. No matter how bundled up, you just standing there holding that thing out there and doing it. You don't generate a lot of heat. And I'm thinking, man, that is cold. It's just cold. And I picture in my mind that maybe that's what Epaphroditus was doing. He's out there in the cold of winter, and he doesn't have any North Face clothes. He doesn't have any car hearts. He's got what they've got for clothing at that time, and he's bundled up to the best of his abilities with what he brought. I don't know that it was winter time when he went, but I'm just giving you a picture that this is what he's doing. Four examples of service where each of those, Christ being a servant going to the cross, Paul being the object of people's service, which many had to suffer. Timothy, who actually was going to come and he had served him in the past and serving him again. And Epaphroditus, who had come and served Paul. Four examples of what service can look like. Four people that were more concerned about other people than they were about what they got out of their service. Four people that served, even if they didn't get anything in return. Even if, like Epaphroditus, they got sick and almost died. Now, we come down to chapter 3. By the way, you have to start in verse 1 where Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say, rejoice in your experiences, rejoice in the hardships of life. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And to write the same thing again, this isn't troublesome for me. It's not like, man, i got to keep telling you again and again. Sometimes we're, we're like that. Sometimes as a pastor, maybe you guys know what it's like as a parent. You ever sometimes feel like, how many times do I have to tell you? This is the way you live the Christian life. This is the way it is. But Paul, you ought not to be that way. Paul says, if I have to tell you a hundred times, I'll tell you a hundred times. Because I'd rather have you get it than go, I'm done telling them. I'm done telling I'm tired. No, Paul says, it's not irksome. That word trouble in the Greek is a word meaning to annoy, to be irksome. He says, it's not irksome for me. But for you, it's safe. It's a good way to look at the way you serve. Is that even if you do the same thing again and again, and sometimes you look at the people that you're helping and going, I don't even know if they're getting it. It seems like I keep taking them back to square one. You just go, well, we go back to square one then. Then he goes on, and he's going to use an example of himself where he's talking about people that are boasting in the things that they can do and the things that they have done. And he says in verse 4, Although I myself may have confidence even in the flesh, if anything else 
has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I even more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew from Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, I've been found blameless. In other words, I did all the right things I was supposed to be doing under law and I took care of it. But he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. In other words, sometimes, what Paul's getting at is, sometimes we, we like to put our awards, our Christian awards on the wall. Best evangelist of the year. Best pastor of the year. Best church cleaner of the year. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I'm talking about. Best servant of the year. That, isn't that, that's almost kind of ironic that you would give out a word for the person that served in the church the best that year. <laughs> but Paul says, whatever it is, whatever accolades, whatever things you might receive, Paul says, I look at all those, I count those things that were gained, I count them all as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I just always have to stop on verse 8. Maybe you get tired of me saying, but the word that the New American Standard translates rubbish, that is putting it in a very genteel manner because it's a word that's used for what you flush down the toilet. And on top of that, it's, it's, we have different words that we use for that. Like if you had King James, they had the word dung. And so that's a word we don't use, so we're not afraid to use that. But there is a word that starts with the letter S that we use in our culture and society today. And guess what? This approximates that much more closely. In other words, it's a very negative way of looking at that. So what Paul is saying, and we miss it sometimes, is Paul is putting a real negative spin on all the things that are gained to me. All the things that are beneficial, all the things I've accomplished, Paul says, it's junk, it's garbage, it's flushed down. The I see, I, I can't even say those words when I'm trying. I'm doing the same thing that these Bibles do. I'm cleaning up Paul's language so as not to be offensive. See, but it is offensive. Sewer trash. Sewer trash. Sewer trash is what the CDB does oh. You're getting there, man. It's it's right there. We're still kind of paint. We're still whitewashing it just a little bit, but but you get the point. Yeah. But think about that. We get so hung up on the things that we've done. So I'm just, I'll use myself as an example. I've been a pastor here in this church for 32 years. I could go. I've pastored for 32 years. Why, I don't even really have to do a whole lot anymore because I have done my fair share. I just have to show up on Sunday. Baloney. Guess what? <laughs> if God puts somebody in front of you five minutes after church is over or tomorrow at 7 o'clock or whatever it is or 12 o'clock at night, that's the opportunity for service. It's not like I've done my service time. Whatever you've accomplished, whatever it may be, however many Bible studies you've taught, how many people you've helped, all these different things that we do as part of church life, guess what? There's still going to be another one that's in front of you. You're still breathing the air. And you just have your eyes open and be waiting for the next one that God puts in front of you. That goes back to it's not me, it's Christ in me. It's the Lord's glory. There you go. Yeah. It's not me. Otherwise, I could mark down and say, can I show you my resume? <laughs> I've got... 40 pages of things I've accomplished. Nobody wants to read 40 pages of your accomplishments. 
Your mama don't even want to reach out. So, I didn't mean to joke, but, but that just kind of hit you funny, yeah. He goes on down in here, and he makes this, this important statement in verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold, that of what Christ laid hold of him for, but this thing, I forget the things that are behind. That's what he just got done saying in those first, those first verses. I forget that stuff back there. And I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is this person of Godhead that's calling you saying, come up here, come up here. He's the one that leads He's the one by whom you walk and he's calling you, come up here in Christ. That's where the Holy Spirit is trying to direct you. It's not the Father doesn't do that. Christ doesn't even say, come up here and abide in me. It's the Holy Spirit that's saying, come up here. And Paul says, all that I've accomplished, I forget that. I forget that. I'm trying to think where Peg and I were recently. We were watching something. It might have been on YouTube, maybe. We were watching somebody in a race. I don't know if they were on a bike or running, but you watch this. What, what, what do you think of when you're watching somebody racing on a bike, running, and they look over their shoulder like this? What are you expecting to happen next? Crash. Crash, yeah. Yeah, wipe out. They're going to catch their foot on something. I, I got to this. I was really excited this week. I finally, because I have not done this, I got to go out and watch the cross-country meet on Thursday afternoon. I got to watch Aram run by me. I, he picked me up on Friday night and took me up to the school. And I was saying, man, that was fun. I said, man, you were really pouring it on there at the end. I mean, the whole thing, he was, you know, coming by. You watch that. He's, you know, you know, I usually watch him. He's kind of laid back. But in a race, man, this guy's in Kenya coming by. And the last time when she comes around, they're breathing hard. They're working hard, you know, at this. And you're going, man, I, this is cool to watch. But you know what those guys don't do? And I didn't watch a single runner from any of the schools do this. None of them were looking over their shoulders. None of them were looking over their shoulders. They're just focused on the fact that's the course ahead of me. That's where I'm heading. <coughs> Keep going ahead till I cross that finish line. Paul says, that's what I do. Go down to the end of... Uh, we're going to go over to chapter 4. Chapter 4. And Paul says, again, you can see we're skipping over a ton of stuff, but chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, you are my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord. Again, he comes, draws them back to who they are in the Lord. I encourage Yodia and I encourage Syntyche. There's, these are two ladies. I encourage them to live in harmony in the Lord. And he uses that expression to frame their minds with the same thing. Their mind... I believe, well, let's keep reading what he says. Yes, and I ask you, true yoke fellow, you help them, you help them who, are, uh, who have ministered and, or struggled together, pardon me, and this is our word athletic, they've worked together as a team with me and Clement and the rest of them that are in the Lord, those whose names are in the book. He says, you need to bring these together. Now, this is what I piece together when you read through this. He tells you that there have been some hard feelings. He tells you that these people are struggling. Some people's motives are wrong. He tells you that some people are struggling just working together as a team. And he says these two ladies have worked together as a team. But these two ladies apparently aren't because they're not framing their mind with the same thing. Maybe they're framing their mind with what Paul is just talking about in chapter 3. These are all the things I've accomplished. These are all the things I've done. This is all the good I've helped with. 
And she's over here thinking, well, these are all the things I've done. And so they're framing their mind with the wrong things. Now, I'm going to say one other thing. If we look down in verse 5, but let's read verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. That word forbearing, the Greek word that he uses there means you've got a goal, but you are willing to let go of that goal. Now, that's one of the things that causes problems sometimes between groups of believers. If you get a group of believers, you have to make a decision. We need to do this. How are we going to get it done? What's the, what's the plan? Well, I think we could do it like this. And it may be a good idea. But maybe this person over here goes, well, I think we should do it like this. And this may be a good idea. We're not saying that one's right and one's wrong. But they're not the same and you got to decide. And everybody goes, well, we're going to go with this person. Or sometimes you just, you ever have personalities that they're just so assertive, they kind of are really good at getting their objective accomplished. And this person maybe is a little quieter and less assertive. And when they go with that, they're like, well, why didn't they choose mine? They never choose mine. Get the picture? And that word that's translated forbearing there is giving that indication you know what a good thing to do when your mind is framed on the proper thing in christ is you're willing to release or let go you're willing to release or let go your goal your objective you're willing to say hey well, yeah let's go with theirs that's okay that's okay don't walk away with your feelings hurt don't walk away going, well, I'm not going to help anymore because they don't ever want to do my, my idea. Just go, I showed up to help. That's all I showed up to do. I didn't show up to get my idea done. I showed up to help. And you help whether it's your idea that you pursue or somebody else's. Does everybody get the picture of this? And so I really think what happened is, is one of these ladies' feelings were hurt. And There's one other little thing I'll just throw out as a hint. This book is the only book that starts with the greeting to the bishops and deacons. And I've wondered sometimes if maybe one of the wives or one of the ladies was the wife of a bishop and one of the wife, one of the ladies was a wife of a deacon. This is purely speculation. Don't quote me and say, this is what it was. And I'm just saying, maybe this is what happened. And maybe they were like, well, her husband's a pastor. Let's go with what she wants. <laughs> well, maybe the deacon's wife has a better idea. <laughs> I'm just saying, to me, it's interesting that he, it's the only letter, it has this problem, it's the only letter that has that in the beginning, and it makes me wonder sometimes if that's, if there's a little bit of a division there that's happened. Isn't it in Philippians 4.1 that says something similar to? No. Flip, that's the one where it says, you are my beloved whom I long and long to see my joy, my crown, my stand firm in the Lord It's the only place in here that he makes that statement that I'm aware of, but maybe he says it someplace else. And so one of the things he tells him to do, we all know this, he tells him, you know, talk to God. How often is it that when we're upset with some other believer, our feelings have been hurt, how often do we just go sit, we go at home, and we sulk? We just kind of sulk, we pout. But Paul says, you know what you need to do when you've got some anxiety, when you're worried about a thing? You need to talk to God. We could sit and go through all of what he says about talking to God there, but the simple fact is you need to talk to God. Talk to God about who God is, talk to God about the problem, and then go back to talking about what God's done. <laughs> That's what you do.
And we could go through, like I said, in, in that in greater detail. But I want to go down and I want to pick up in verse 10 now, chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I'm speaking from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself in. I know how to be humble, and I know how to live in prosperity. In, er in everything, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and, and going hungry, of abundance and suffering need. You know what the secret is? You know how you can be content in whatever situation you find yourself? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who has strengthened me. You re receive, in the Greek, it's indicating that this is something that you do in this person, in this person. So this is, again, this goes back to a mental thing that you're doing, but you're doing it in this person. This person, I believe, has to do with the person of Jesus Christ because the emphasis in this book is on who your position is in Christ and that one thing. So he's the one that's strengthening you in this regard. We don't have a, a ton of these, but this is, this is one of the places where we have this idea. And he's talking about a mental strength. This is We looked at this last, last week over in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, that there's a, a strength in the inner man that gives us the ability to love and to, and to be engaged with other believers for their benefit, not just for what we get out of it. And he says, I'm strong for all these things. I've told you before, I still remember in track when I was in junior high and high school and you're running and back then running a mile. I can't imagine running like these cross country kids run three miles. Good grief, I would have said that. I was just like, kill me now. That's what I would have, that's the way I would have responded back then. And so you're running that and you're doing a mile and after about you reach the halfway point on a mile, you realize I pushed it a little too hard at the beginning. Then you're running around that track as a kid and you're like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. And, and that's not what this is about at all. This is not about being made strong to run a mile or some other thing like this. This is being made strong in the inner man in relationship to your position in Christ so that you can actually be content in any situation. That's the context. So you can be okay. You know, like, hey, this isn't the way I thought it was going to turn out. <laughs> or, hey, I'm in the Lord. He gives me strength. I can keep it together. I can mentally think properly. Going through this thing. Things are not the way I, way I wanted them to be. And all of this then, he goes on down here and he's talking about how they've helped him in the past. And so he's talking about, you guys have done something to meet a material need that I had. But I'm okay either way because I've learned to be hungry or to be full. I've learned to be content in every situation. But all of that then, and let's go to verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus. See, this comes back to what I was talking about, this gift that they sent with him. What you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So he says, you guys have filled up my need by doing this. But my God, he says, will fill up all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. His reputation is he has these benefits for us in our position in Christ. And if you would relate to who God says you are, he can fill up that need. Now, this is an interesting fact about this word supply. 
It's the same word that's used for filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5. It's used by Paul in the book of Colossians with respect to the body of Christ. In fact, in Ephesians, every place that Paul uses the word fill or fullness always refers in the end to something about the body of Christ. And Paul's using it here. Because you know what he's really talking about? He says he will supply or fill up my need. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about filling you up with what you need to function like you're part of the body. That's what this is about. This isn't just some altogether different thing from what he's saying in Ephesians and Colossians. This is the same thing. Your need is to be able to work together and function together as a team, as a body, as a temple of God, as the church with other believers. And to do so in a manner that glorifies God, it says something about God's riches that he's given to us in Christ. That's his reputation, that he does this for all. So the first thing as we close, that's about us right here. But it's not limited to us, is it? Because how many of you deal with believers that are in different places? Any of you ever deal with believers that attend New Life? I hope you do. They're believers Brothers and sisters in Christ, you serve and work together with them. Believers that live in other places outside, you serve and work together with them as God puts them in your path and gives you opportunity. You don't look at them and go, well, they don't go to my church, so I don't help. I don't do stuff with them. Why? They're still part of the body of Christ. See, in other words, you can come and you can be just like these two ladies and you can have this idea stuck in your head. Well, this is the way they did it that time. I ain't helping them. <laughs> How is that different in reality than what's going on here? It's not. And the whole point is you, when you have what God puts believers in your path and he gives you an opportunity to serve in some way, help some way, Maybe it's just you're helping one individual. Maybe you're helping several individuals, whatever it is. You have to have the right frame of mind and you can actually deal with the hard feelings and the things that get in the way that keep you from serving just like these. I, I think one of the things, one of the greatest things that God ever did for us with the book of Philippians is he didn't tell us what Yodi and Syntyche's problem was other than that apparently somebody's feelings were hurt. Because if he actually told us specifically what the issue was, we go, well, I don't have that problem. My problem's this, and this it's okay to feel that way about this problem. Their problem was that. I can't believe they had a problem with that. He leaves it open. It's open enough that we don't know what it is. You know why? Because there's a lot of things that get in the way of believers working together. And in the end, you know where that need is going to be met? The need the Philippians had being an impoverished church, the need wasn't that they needed more resources. It wasn't that they needed better jobs, that they needed more money. What they needed was going to be met in Christ Jesus with God's riches. Their need was to be able to get along and work together like a team with believers, not First Baptist Church team. Team, I hate to say this because I've heard people say this, Team Jesus, I don't know if I like to use that language, but you get the odd point. Body of Christ, that's the team. That means any believers that God brings across your path, wherever they may be, that you serve with those believers to the degree that God enables you to serve. 
I hope you all appreciate that and understand that. And that's according to his glory. When we do that, it's actually saying something about God's glory because it's an expression of his glory that we actually work together as a team. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together as believers. We're thankful for your word challenges us. This passage has been very challenging to me over the last few years because uh, I realize that sometimes I can really hold certain believers at arm's length for various reasons. Uh, and sometimes it's because they just don't want to do it the way I think that they ought to do it. But we're thankful that you have given us something we really should set our minds to, and that is who we are in Christ, so that we can go into situations and we can think properly and we can serve together. We can work together. We can function like members of a team. Thankful for this time together. Thankful for the team that you've put together. That is the body of Christ. Help us to remember who we all are together at your right hand. Amen. Have a great day.